to a new RFM 103.7. This is Pet Chat. And uh, we've got lots of things coming up for you in today's program. We'll be speaking to a breeder of eclectus parrots and lots of other things too. But we will start off, David Tabret, with you. Yes. Your topic today is caesareans. Yes, well, that's the end result, I guess, of uh, when things don't quite go to plan for breeding dogs and cats and um, rabbits and guinea pigs often need caesareans. Um, what else have we done? Rabbits, yeah, So all, and ferrets, all, all different things, but uh, generally dogs. So that's, that's where we see most of um, our caesarean surgeries. And what's happening is that... Um, there's something going wrong in the birth process and they're not progressing. That's really the main determinant. But if we go back a few steps to how did we get there in the first place, the breeding thing. So dogs come on heat at about six months of age. That means they're receptive to the male and they're going to breed. And they cycle about every six months, although there's a couple of um, dog species breeds, that uh, the dingo for one and I think the basenji that cycles every 12 months. I'm not sure about that one, actually. Oh, my dog Sorry. experts letting me down. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure. But most dogs will cycle every uh, six months. And so the, the gestation period, the pregnancy time, is uh, about 63 days, plus or minus six days. So 57 to 69 is considered normal. And uh, ho hopefully things then progress and they go into labour. Now, here's what happened. First stage labour is the dog then nesting and they start to become like, you know, seeking out a spot to go and have the pups. And that's where everything's starting to soften up and so that the puppies can start to come out. That's the first stage labour. That can occur about 12 hours before. Sometimes they'll do some nesting behaviour uh, a day or three before that. But uh, 12 hours before they can do this normal activity of preparing to have the puppies and then what's happening then is they go into second stage labor is where they actually give birth to the pup third stage labor is when the placenta comes out now what happens is they should go first stage labor and then second stage third stage second stage third stage and so on as each puppy comes out in turn mm. sometimes the placenta gets stuck and remain inside and they might come out later or maybe they don't come out at all and that can be a problem as well so second stage labour is the puppies. Now that should happen uh, probably about every two hours is the time limit I tend to talk to people about, um, particularly if they haven't whelped dogs before, what so to you look end up, out for. you end up staying awake for quite a while if she's got ten pups, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they can stretch it out. They certainly yes. can. I mean, sometimes you'll get, th you know, three and half an hour because it's like bang, bang, bang. And they have what's called a bicornuate uterus so that means it's like a y shape and puppies will come down one side the left side and the right side and they'll go left right left right and so they'll actually come out in a nice even fashion if nothing goes wrong however sometimes we see the the mother might be too small in the back end and in particular i tend to think of um, breeds that have got those big wide shoulders and little back ends uh bulldogs the one staffordshire terriers often uh, can have a similar thing and maybe just little dogs in general mm. and particularly if they only have one pup because this puppy is filling up the uterus when it's growing and it's got all this room to stretch out and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger whereas if you've got say two or three each puppy might be restricted in how much it can grow so it stays small but if it's a single pup and I can remember countless number of caesareans that I've done I mean in the hundreds 
on uh, little chihuahuas and dogs like this that have had, say, Maltese terriers that have had low number of puppies in the litter. So what happens is uh, it might be that the, um, the mother's too small and so it's like cork in a bottle, it can't come out. And let me tell you, if it ain't coming out the back end, it's got to come out somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's when we go for surgery and so it's an indication that we need to do a caesarean surgery. And obviously we'd like to do that at the earliest opportunity to maintain the health of the the mother the bitch and also the puppies as well and the viability of them so um, how long should you wait if your dog's good got question a, a longer time between pups well as i said the general rule i say to people is two hours between puppies or if the bitch has been pushing for half an hour with no progress and, and usually I say to people, just lift the tail, and if you can see a bulge, that's the puppy starting to push into the birth canal, and that should progress. So they're actively contracting their abdomen, and if you notice, okay, it's half an hour, nothing's happened, we need to get it to the vet. The other thing is if you see uh, blood or green discharge, now I'll tell you about the green discharge in a quick second, but if you see either of those two things before a puppy coming out if they've already had one you might get a bit of discharge anyway and the green fluid is actually the placental fluid it's what we call billy verdon so it's a a way for oxygen to get across the placenta just happens to be green i don't know why um but uh so if you see that before a puppy's coming what it means is this placental separation so the puppy's lost that oxygen delivery and if we don't get it out pretty quick it can suffer and die Mm. so they're the sort of three clues if it's longer than two hours, pushing for half an hour, you get that discharge, green or red, red being blood, before the puppy's born. And in which case then it might be that, um, you know, the, the mother's had eight puppies and it's just having, it's exhausted, can't get the last one out. Um, the other thing we do see, some breeds is a thing called primary inertia and that's where the uterus just does not respond to oxytocin, which is the hormone that causes contraction. And the characteristic, they're not that common, but the characteristic of those is if we give them oxytocin, nothing happens. There's no contractions. And it doesn't matter, you know, what you do, you're not going to get pups out. You have to do surgery. And surgery takes, I mean, there's a small risk, obviously. Uh, As I said earlier, the better. But it probably takes less than an hour to get the puppies out. And then we have to work on making the puppies, you know, breathing and all of that. Lots of oxygen and warmth and rubbing and so on. And um, hopefully we get... Live puppies, live mummy, everyone goes home happy. Oh, a happy end to the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not the end of the story it's for not, this program. <laughs> and, and not the end of the story for the pet owners because then you've got to, as Danny can tell us, yes. rear these puppies and be there and then they've got to be wormed and vaccinated and microchipped. And, and, and always made sure that they're kept clean. And, and can I just mention is that for people is nobody's ever made money breeding dogs. All right, because you always get scuppered at some stage. You might do five litters and never have a problem, and then you get a cesarean, or you might get it on your first one, or whatever. So you've got a it's it's a lifetime dedication, isn't it? Danny? It's more about the passion. Yeah, it's um, it's a hobby. And for us, it's also about trying to see the about bettering the breed. Like, yep. you know, getting a Weimaraner that's going to be the best. <laughs> and that's that competitive spirit, I guess, as well. So M- Mentioned about the breed. So I'm guessing Weimaraners, I mean, I have to tell you, I have not done, uh, I can't even think of a caesarean on a Weimaraner. Mm-hmm. And I've yeah. literally done, you know, a thousand caesareans. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, we haven't had um, touch wood, touch an wood. issue with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's been, it's been quite good. And usually uh, our girls have 
have had fairly easy labours. Yeah, mm. they, they've, and it's all over and done with um, between about about ten hours usually, and ten to twelve hours with litters between six and uh, sorry seven and ten. Yeah. Seven's the yeah. smallest litter we've had. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, that's so, good. Um, so it's it's quite good. If it starts early in the morning, it's good because you got the whole day. But if it starts at midnight, then you're not sleeping that night. <laughs> <laughs> the joys of being a breeder. Exactly. And right now we're listening to Two and RFM's Pet Chat. And Danny Boss, you've got a breeder of a very interesting type of animal. <laughs> That's right, Jane. Now you don't know, Ecolexis, you don't think you've seen one, do you? I don't. No, they are very pretty. But we'll be talking to Joel Hagney, who's a, a breeder of a of number of different types of par- um, parrots and Eclectus being one of them. He's bred for 22 years. He breeds and hand raises Alexandrines, lorikeets, finches, Indian ringnecks, Eclectus, as we've said, sulfur crested cockatoos as well. And he works in, as a bird expert in one of our local pet stores. He has been a judge of fancy pigeons at, at different pigeon shows and has shown many of his own birds, including chooks and pigeons who've won various types of awards in those shows. So welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. Now, out of all those varied birds, today we'll be talking to you about Ecolectus. So first of all, can you describe the appearance and the colours of the Ecolectus? Well, being a very unusual bird, um, the female is actually more brightly coloured than the male. Uh, The male's mostly a bright green colour with red around the feet and uh, orange to red beak. Yes. Uh, where the female's more of a bright red uh, with purple and she's got more of a darker coloured beak. So they're um, quite an unusual bird. They're a medium to large size parrot. Yes. So that, and in, in regards to breeding of them, when, if you wanted to breed these birds, when would you, what age do they start breeding? How long would you have to keep them for before they started having uh, babies? Well, they are a fairly long-living bird, living 30-odd years, so mm-hmm. they don't mature until around three to four years. Right, okay. And when they do have... So that's about when you would look for them to start breeding. Yeah, ideally you shouldn't breed them, you know, any younger than that. Yeah. Um, the yeah, ideal age would be starting at around three years. And in terms of how many eggs would they have? At a maximum, they lay two eggs. Yes. Uh, they usually hatch both of them. Yes. And as a general, they usually have a male and a female chick. Okay. Oh, they have one of each. As, as a general, as a general yes, they usually do. Yeah. That's quite interesting. I've actually got a, a pair of Ecolectus m- myself, and I've had them now for about two years. I did buy them when they were a bit younger, and only now have they had um, a baby. And the baby's about, yeah, five, six weeks old. But, okay. but while she did have two eggs, only... Only one has survived. A lot of the time that can happen. One mm. of the eggs can get damaged. Um, you know, different things. The parent birds jumping back into the log or the box. Um, yes. They can, you know, accidentally jump on one of the eggs. Yep. Um, and that may happen with when, when it's their first time too, I guess. That's right. You know, it's all practice for them as well. As I said, they're a long-living bird, so they've got a lot of time to practice. They're new, new, new parents. <laughs> That's it. Where do they originate from? You can find them pretty much, uh, you know, from a lot of places around the world. Um, as a general, the nominate species that we get in Australia comes from Papua New Guinea. Yes. We do also have Australian native ones that come from right up the top around the Cape York. Oh, which okay. Are a much larger parrot than the Papua New Guinea. Yes. Um, and they also come from the Solomon Islands and a few other islands around that area. 
And they're still the same colours for male and female? As a general, they're all the same colours. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find them in certain colour variations, and there is a few um, mutations in them now. They come in a blue colour and they come in a pearling colour as well. Oh, okay. They would be interesting to see. I've never seen one of those. I've never actually seen them in real life myself. No. <laughs> now, tell us a little bit about the feeding regime. What's required uh, when feeding the eclectus? They do uh, naturally eat a lot of fruits, um, flowers and insects in the flowers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So in captivity, they're not a really good bird just to keep on seed. They do need a lot of vegetable matter. Right. Uh, Also fruits, um, nuts, uh, which are great for a small amount of protein and vitamin E for them. Um, I get, actually, funny you should mention about that because I've got a little vegetable garden and I grow chilies, nice little red hot chilies, and they love the (laughs) chilies. find most of your parrots do, they, they absolutely do. adore the chilies and it'll also, you know, help them um, to breed, you know, they know that there's going to be a lot of fruit around okay. um, when the chilies are around, yep. so that's a good, good idea to get them breeding. Is it, they don't, they don't get the hotness out of those chilies though, do they? No, they don't. Because they just go for it. <laughs> they absolutely love them. Especially the seeds, the seeds in the chili, just go for it. <laughs> Um, now, do they ha- do they make excellent pets? Because you hand raise them as well. Do they make excellent pets? They do. With you know a, a small amount of imprinting um, and constant training, um, they're an unreal bird. They are very intelligent. Actually, something that I learnt not long ago that they're um, actually ranked as uh, third on the list for um, talking parrots um, oh, okay. behind Amazons and African grey parrots. Wow. They are a very intelligent bird. Um, the males probably make better pets overall, um, as the females can um, develop hormonal-related uh, problems, aggression, okay. biting, yes. things like that. But yes. as a overall, um, you know, they're they're a really good bird. They're um, medium to large parrot, friendly, um, very entertaining. Now, actually, funny you should mention about it being third on the line after Amazons and African greys. I did get a, an email come through with an. African grey called Einstein who can have a conversation with you like the owner would ask him you know what what sound does a a, a fire engine make and he'd and he'd imitate the siren sound that's right the African greys you know the world's most intelligent parrot and um they're yeah just really amazing you know they they didn't believe that birds could actually process thoughts but they can think about you know what color and what matter and things are and yeah, quite amazing birds. We'll have to talk about them another time. Going back to the Eclectus, if you were to keep one at home, what kind of a cage would you have for your hand-raised Eclectus? You'd have to have something with a minimum of around 3 foot, 36 inches, yep. um, a little bit higher as well. Um, yep. They do like to get up fairly high. I'd recommend probably a play gym or something like that for it on the external of the cage, so yep. maybe on the top. Or and an, an open, open top, top open top cage as well? Would probably be the best. You know, I say the bird's got a bit of freedom that it can come in and out of its cage. They do like to have somewhere that's secure and is their own. Yes. Um, but they also really like to get out their cage and, you know, interact in everyday activities, you know, doing the dishes and helping you clean, and <laughs> And they, they're they fine with the whole family, the kids and they are, as well as, as the said, adults. You know, um, with regular and constant training, um, you know, to reinforce them all the time, but they are fine, you know, um, can be cat and dog friendly as long as your other animals are friendly with them. You'll well. have no problems with interactive with kids and adults and any, you know, any people that come into your house. And finally, what's the lifespan of an eclectus? As I said earlier, probably around the 30 plus years they can live for. So wow. you've got a friend that's going to be around for quite some time. Wow. So that's a good commitment there. Definitely. Well, thank you very much for your time. No I worries. appreciate thank that. You. It's unreal. Okay. Have All a good right. afternoon. Bye.
Thanks, and that's Joel Hagney, who breeds eclectus parrots. And you're listening to 2NURFM's Pet Chat. And the number for you to ring if you've got a question you'd like to put to our pet vet or to Danny or whatever is 49216216. And that's the number that Linda has rung. And so we'll say hello to Linda. Hello. Hello. Yes, you've got a question you'd like to put to David? Yes, I guess my question is the opposite of what he was talking about with cesareans and having puppies. We have an 18-month-old Labrador Doberman cross, mm-hmm. and he's not, he's not de-sexed as yet. Uh, the vet advised us to wait till he started lifting his leg before we <laughs> got him de-sexed. But we're starting to find he's wandering a little bit. Yes. Would you advise, is he too old now? I, um, he's never too old. Um, 18 months is certainly old enough. The, I guess the question comes down to the hormonal influences and so on. There's, there's a lot of concern about early desexing programs and the effect on growth and um, growth plate co- closure in the bones. But that's really when we're talking about pups that are, you know, say uh, three months of age or less. So um, by the 12 months of age, 15 months of age, most of the bone growth has already occurred. So I would say absolutely. Um, that wandering influence is definitely testosterone-driven and uh, getting him de-sexed is the best thing that you can do for his health. Oh, lovely. Do you have any advice? There's mixed opinions about whether it changes their personality, like he's fairly frisky kind of puppy. But. Makes them a... Well, I can only tell you that... I guess it's pers- it's individual between each dog. There's an influence of um, certainly if they're a... a mature adult dog that some of their behaviors may well be testosterone driven and you're removing that but usually those behaviors we tend to consider a more problem behaviors in a social and urban setting so it's not so much that their personality changes it's just that they tend to do less of the things that probably get them into trouble so all in all i'd say it's a much better option and uh at 18 months of age you still got um you know behavioral growth to occur so I think that even if you have him de-sexed, he's still going to develop into, um, you know, the the dog and the pet that you want to have. It's still fairly playful and everything. Yeah, like oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What about recovery times? Is he... After, su- after surgery? Yeah. Oh, you do have to be a little bit cautious, like, you know, don't um, run him around too much uh, in the week afterwards. But seriously, dogs bounce back and they're jumping in and out of the car. I'm not saying they should, but... <laughs> they 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 don't really feel, you know, two days later or a day later, they're they're back to their normal behaviour. Excellent. Certainly, the twenty four hours post surgery, they they need to be watched quite carefully. But yeah. after that, the the effects on them are quite minimal. All right, looks good. I think we might look into doing it for him. <laughs> Do it. Good on you. Lovely. Thanks for that. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Linda, for your call. And uh, Sue joins us. Hello, Sue. Hi. How are you? Hi, Sue. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you. That's good. Um, I'm having a problem with um, my dog. He's 10 years old mm-hmm. and um, we've had a sort of traumatic last 12 months. We've had uh, my husband pass away. We've moved out of our house that we've been in for a long time. That's all he's known. Sure. And I'm now living with my mum while we're building a house. So he's sort of a little bit unsettled with all of that going on. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, mum's not used to having him here and he actually got out on the road and got run over last week. Oh, my goodness. So surprisingly enough, he's just very sore and limping around. There's nothing broken. But the problem we have, mum has a blue-tongued lizard living in the yard. And it's just incredible how it can hide itself. 
And my dog is constantly out there trying to rip at the fence and chew at the fence, trying to get to this blue tongue, and we just can't catch it. And he's doing more damage with his paws and his mouth, and he's just being so territorial about the whole thing that it's driving us and the neighbours crazy, and I think Mum's ready for us to leave. (laughs) (laughs) How long till your house is built? (laughs) Probably another four months. Yeah. uh, He's a very, um, he's, a, he's quite an unusual mixed breed, and I think he's mm. having identity crisis because he's a Shih Tzu. His mum was a Shih Tzu, and his dad's a Border Collie. He's had, uh, he's had, I mean, so many things ha- happened over the, this period of time. Obviously, there's the anxiety, but the being in this environment, and then there's something to focus on. This lizard that he knows is there. What I would suggest, because you do want to protect our native wildlife That's as well. Right. That's right. Um, if you go to uh, Hardware store, get some PVC pipe. Yeah. Get it cut into lengths. Maybe you need about three or four of these. Get it cut into lengths. It's got to be about three inch diameter. Yeah. Get it cut into lengths about or two feet long or a foot and a half long. Yeah. And leave that around the perimeter of the property so that what will happen is that the lizard will actually take refuge in there and then you know where it is. Right. Okay. okay. And, uh, it's an escape opportunity so that if the, if the blue tongue needs to get across the yard and um, your little guy's out, uh, he might have somewhere that he can actually escape to and hide. Okay, so should I encourage it with some type of food or something to get it to come out? No, I wouldn't wouldn't say so. You know, they, they're great for cleaning up snails in your garden, yeah, actually. Yeah, and we'd, we'd really like to keep it and have it go into the front garden for the snails and to come out of the backyard altogether. Yeah, sure. Well, if it if it turns up and your dog's going silly over over one of these tubes that it's crawled into, then okay, you've got it in there. You'll be able to see it. You can either pick it up or just carefully transport it in the, in the tube if you didn't want to handle the lizard, lizard, and then take him out to the front yard, to okay. the front garden. So PVC piping is probably the best way to to get him to move. Okay. And just another question I wanted mm-hmm. to ask for this time that we are at Mum's. Um, is there anything, I've tried a few natural products just to help him relax and settle down and uh, they don't seem to be working. Is mm. there anything mild that we could give him um, prescription-wise that could sort of settle him down for the next couple of months? There, um, as I alluded to before, and um, for yourself and, and um, for your dog, obviously, been through so much recently, and some dogs do need medication, and uh, we do use anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication, which helps to restore a normal balance of um, uh, neurochemicals in the brain that are going to make him feel a bit better. There are products available that do that, and as you mentioned, they do need to be u- utilised by um, or used under prescription, so you would need to see your local veterinarian about that. Um, there are some as you might have already tried some natural products. I don't know if Danny's got any advice about things that are used to calm pets. Yeah, the only thing is those natural products. Then there is a few paste products like Behave Paste or Tranquil Paste that can be used for dogs and horses. A lot of okay. horse people use those pastes when they're travelling their horse to a show and so forth because the horse can get agitated while in the trailer. Okay. Uh, so they, they can work. Um, or the last resort would be going to a prescription-based medicine yeah. like David has that would help. The the pa- other, the Sorry, I was going to say the pace, if I remember, normally a tryptophan basis, which is yes. sort of a, um, is metabolised in the body to a hormone that actually makes you quite calm. So that might be an option if you haven't used it before. Mm. So is that a prescription thing or can you get that at... Um, those those products, the Behave Pace or the um, the tryptophan base 
Yeah, like they the, can be the bought in one. pet stores, like the horse one. Um, so they're not prescription based. Yeah, okay. but don't buy the horse one. Buy the one for dogs. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to overdose. He no, no, might end up taking the lizard for a ride on his back if that's the He'll be happy about it. Yeah. So okay. there's a few things to try there, but um, yeah, certainly there are some medications that can be used, but they generally are considered to be a long-term treatment. Okay. Um, you know, and that might maybe the path that you need to go down. Mm. Yeah, we have had problems with him since he was a pup, and and as you're just talking to the last lady about, we had him um, desex when he was six months old, old, hoping he'd sort of settle down a little. Mm. Uh, didn't make a big difference, <laughs> and we have trained him and everything, but no, he does what he wants to do when he wants to do. Still, okay, yeah. yeah so there may be anxiety that's driving a lot of those behaviours, in which case some medication may be necessary. Yeah. Yep. Okay, look, Alrighty. thank you very much. I really appreciate Thanks, that. Sue. Thanks, Sue. Thanks, uh, Sue. Uh, 49216 is the number to ring if you'd like to put a call through to our pet vet or our team here, and Margaret has done that. Hello, Margaret. Hello. Uh, look, I have a uh, cockatiel, and he's absolutely so aggressive that you can't get near him. Um, right. We used to be able to let him out of the cage, but now I can't let him out of the cage at all because I can't catch him, and every time I go near him, he just rips my hands to pieces. That's a bit nasty, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) Have you only got the one bird, Margaret? Only got the one bird, yes. I inherited it. Okay, and how old do you think he is? Um, He's about three or four. Mm, And so how long have you had him for? Uh, About 18 months. So he was an adult bird when you got him, and his behaviour was okay, but it's deteriorated since. Yes. When, Very badly. So did he used to get out and, just like, sit on your shoulder or things like that? No, he never sat on the shoulder, but he would sit on the curtain rail and he and, mm. and I used to be able to just put a hoop up and he'd hop onto the hoop and he'd come down and get back into the cage. Mm-hmm. But now he just flies madly round and round the house and okay. I just can't let him out because the dog's chasing now too when he flies around. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Look, one of the things is height is a is a big determinant of the social pecking order, so to speak. Um, right. And that the fact that he can get up on those rails and he's up above you means that he takes a dominant position. Right. There may also be some hormonal influences at different times of the year. You'll find their behaviour will increase or, you know, up and down mm-hmm. in terms of aggression. But uh, it sounds to me like um, the social structure is a problem and that's where... Getting higher means the bird thinks, okay, he's the boss, he'll do what he likes, he's not really interested in what you want him to do, and so he'll just, you know, if you come near him, he wants to bite you. Mm. Um, That can take a lot of work. You can turn him around because it it needs some fairly structured retraining of behaviour. One of of the things, uh, you mentioned that you've got dogs, so I'm wondering about is is it safe for him to actually be uh, down at a lower level where the dogs might be? Oh, he doesn't mind the dogs. And what do the dogs um, think of him? One of the dogs couldn't care less. Right. The other one thinks it's dinner. <laughs> well, we don't want dinner served up with feathers, so <laughs> we don't. We might have to isolate them, you know, when we try and do this retraining. What I would normally suggest is, and look, this is something that takes a lot of time, and I would encourage you to talk to someone who has experience with um, and the time uh, in terms of retraining, but possibly um, looking at having his wings clipped both sides so that he can't get himself up to that height. Right. And that has to be done carefully so that, um, 
you know, we don't cut blood feathers and it's done at so the right take time. to the vet to get it done. Yeah, it's often recommended because if they do need to be clipped carefully and flight tested, we want to make sure he can fly out of danger, but not to that height. Yeah. Um, you know, so that he could probably get himself up one or two feet uh, rather than going up six or eight feet above your head. Okay? Yeah, and then it's, it's a ma- And then it's a matter of probably retraining him as far as food's concerned because teals love food. And I would say, do you leave seed with him all day? Yes. Yeah, we need to restructure them. They're, used, they're Australian parrots. They feed in large flocks in the wild and they fly into water holes at dawn and dusk. Right. And so they And they roost during the day because it's hot. Okay, mm. so biologically you can use that to your advantage and only feed him twice a day and, right. and make him, uh, you know, getting used to taking food and that way you're the provider of food, you're the boss. Okay, then. Uh, that's you, a, said about, you said about the chilies. Can he have chilies? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. I was going to say, the chilli thing, what happens is with people, we, we have what's... <laughs> My birds love chilies. We have, uh, people have um, capsaicin receptors in our mouth, yeah. um, or rather, sorry, the capsaicin, which is the chemical in the chilli that's really hot, uh, actually stimulates the heat receptors, and in some people, pain receptors, and uh, that's why your mouth feels hot, and it's the reaction to that, whereas birds don't don't have a, a response to capsaicin. But, right. but if you get nice red ones, for instance, and so on, the, the chemicals, the natural uh, chemicals in the food can actually improve the colour of the bird oh, right. as well. Very big... Um, He's a very pretty bird. Yeah. yeah. And he, he just chirps and carries on all day. Well, we need to, need to restrict his feeding... He's going to think right. his throat's been cut, right? <laughs> but you're going to have to, first of all, restrict his feeding back to twice a day. Okay, then. And um, as I said, I think probably his wings clipped and talk to someone who does, has experience in this and structure a program to get him back to um, respecting you, who, after all, has provided him refuge and uh, food. So okay, then. a lot of work, but I'm sure you can get through it. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, Margaret. Good luck, okay, Margaret. Bye-bye. And uh, Susan has joined us on 49216216. Susan, you've got a question for David? Um, yes, my inquiry isn't about a pet as such, but I'm just wondering if you have any, any um, hints on inviting frogs into the backyard. We've got a few little ponds that we've put there, but yep. um, we've had them there for about two years, but we never hear the croaking of frogs or... Yeah, uh, that's, if, yeah. that's one of the things, isn't it, that like... I'm, I remember growing up as a kid, we used to frogs all all over the place. And I have to tell you, I think they're starting to make a comeback. But frogs as amphibians are very sensitive to environmental um, contaminants and so on because their their moist skin can absorb so much. And so as soon as there's something out of kilter with the environment, then they start to suffer. And there's also been uh, a migration of um, fungi that have come down the east coast that have actually infected frog populations and literally killed them off. However, um, happy to say is I think we're seeing an increase as people take more notice of this and try to clean up your environment. And uh, it's a very local thing, but obviously, um, you know, you, you can only affect what you've got in your backyard. It's going to take time. Um, I'm not sure if you can actually, uh, you know, go and buy some tadpoles or catch some. Um, when I was a kid, we used to catch them all the time, but they're just so rare to see these days. But you, can, it's, you might be able to get some frogs from mm. registered breeders. 
that you would have to contact. And there's the Society of Frog and Reptiles uh, that you yeah. can talk to. Excellent. Um, and we often pronounce, I think they have a meeting every second Tuesday um, of the month at West Walls and Community Hall. Yep. So they're the people that you could talk to and see if you could get some frogs if you wanted to introduce them into your environment. And it's very much about reducing the level of chemicals yes. in your own backyard, like mm. washing uh, liquids and, and, you know, washing the car or something. is just we've got to cut all that out if you want to have them back there. Um, and it's a good sign if you do, if frogs just naturally come into your environment, it's a good good sign that your place is quite clean then. In terms of chemicals. <laughs> so there's, oh, okay. there's something to work on, Susan. You've got the structure there. You've, you've got to um, you know, make sure that you're not getting runoff from other properties and so on and reduce the level of chemicals in your own environment. Talk to the people who are in the um, Society of Frogs and Reptiles and um, their contact would be either in the phone book or through the Wetlands Centre at yep. um, Shortland. And this is 2NURFM's Pet Chat at 921, and we're taking your calls on 49216216. Glenn, you've got a question? Yeah, g'day, how are you? Hi, Glenn. G'day, how are you? Good, mate. Um, I've taken my uh, dog over the beach for a bit of a walk, yep. and um, I think it's a blue bottle sting that's got her across the back, and because she was sitting there itching at it, it's got her on the nose and around the lips. Okay. Um, have you heard of blue bottle stings? Um, yeah, gen- generally, they're, um, le- if they're live, uh, then they're... Um, I had a dog come in recently that actually ate one um, into the emergency centre. It ate a blue bottle, but it turned out like, we think it was dead, the blue bottle. Um, but uh, blue bottle stings are a little interesting thing. They've got these little mechanical venom injectors like little needles that ratchet up and so what happens is they're spring loaded and if they're triggered then they shoot a dart in that deposits the venom under the skin now if they're dead that actually doesn't happen and also we've seen dogs don't really have a great deal of reaction to the uh to the sting itself certainly not like we see with people um now there might be different factors for that but um uh, could just be that dogs just aren't as sensitive so um, if, it, if it's a live one and, it, and she's chewed at it or licked or around that area, then it certainly could have triggered that. Um, the interesting thing with treatment for people is that warm or very warm water is the best uh, way of treating blue bottle stings. Um, haven't had a great deal of problem. I'd be concerned about the itching and so on. Might be a reaction to other things in the water or just the salt on the skin generally so a really good thorough wash is going to take care of any sort of problem um the main problem we see with dogs that get along on the beach or even on the lake is the puffer fish that they ingest puffer fish and then they can actually go into paralysis and uh, they contain a thing called tetrodotoxin which is a paralytic agent which will um literally we've had dogs on ventilators for days where they've ingested puffer fish and it has been known to kill people and, of course, the same toxin is the component in fugu, which is the uh, Japanese fish that they prepare that you eat and it makes your face go tingly if you don't stop breathing. So you got to, there are some creatures you've got to watch out for on the beach. I think a really good wash down with fresh water will take care of most things um, that you might find that are just causing skin irritations. Bath and we've rubbed some cream. It's got like a big welt all the way along one side of her. Yeah. And uh, she's really like it's upset her a fair bit. But um, if she's eaten something, 
that might be coming out from inside. Um, yeah, stomach acid's a pretty strong thing, you know, it's uh, hydrochloric acid, so most of the time, unless it's caused problems in a mouth, and again, washing thoroughly with lots of, uh, you know, fresh water will take care of that. Yeah, well, so. it was only probably about an hour ago that it's happened. Yeah, still worth a wash down, um, yeah. and, and in the mouth as well. Otherwise, um, we tend to think of using like uh, antihistamines and so on. But for that, you really need to then take her off to the vet. So I'd say a good wash in fresh water, just with the hose, um, will remove 99% of problems for you. Yeah, no, I think we might duck it down to the vet. Mm-hmm. For a check. Okay, just to get sure. it checked out. Okay. Good Thank luck, Glenn. Good on you. Thank you very much for your trouble. No worries. Bye. And Kim joins us now. Hello, Kim. Hello. Um, I've got a galah coming in from the wild. Mm-hmm. It seems to have a problem with its beak, where the the bottom part of its beak has grown probably about an inch longer than the top. Okay. Yeah. Um, we do see that with various problems. It can be related to um, beak and feather disease, which is a virus that they can get, and that's right. rather dangerous virus for them because it actually reduces their immune system. It affects the production of feather down and changes the nature of their skin and birds immune system is highly built around the barrier effect that their skin and the feathers protects them from the environment and sometimes it's reflected in the beak obviously the name beak and feather other times trauma um, would be the other thing i would be thinking about and damage to the top beak could allow the bottom beak to overgrow because they actually work against each other yeah, I've had a good close look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems healthy enough, although it's having difficulty eating various types of seeds. It can only eat a small seed because it can't get that bottom beak tucked under to snap open, you know, right. types of seeds. So yeah. I'm, I'm a bit worried. It's you know, it's, it looks okay at this stage, but yeah. um, it's having problems with the beak. So is that worth me trying to catch it and take it to a vet to get it? to get it trimmed off or will it break off itself or well it might i mean if it breaks it can actually cause damage and um, bleeding and infection and things like that so obviously that's a worry no 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 and uh so what you need to do is um so you don't have it in captivity at this stage it's just what in the yard it's been coming in we've got a fairly bird friendly yard right you know leave out a bit of for it and it's come in to, to eat the smaller seeds yeah what I would suggest is if you contact, uh, which area are you calling from? Uh, we're over at Blacksmith. Okay, if you contact Native Animal Trust Fund, yeah. who are the licensed wildlife carers in this region, okay. and they'll be able to advise you on what the best course of action oh, is okay. because with yeah. uh, sick or injured wildlife like that, they need mm-hmm. to be in, involved and uh, advising on how to, how to um, deal with that problem. All right, then. Okay. Right. Thanks very much for that. Yep, they're in the phone book, Native, Native Animal Trust Fund. Yes, I've got their details. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks for your call, Kim. That's great. And uh, Danny, just a quick message. Yeah, i just got to put this in because time's running out. Vasey Village Country Carnival will be held at the at Gressford Road Vasey on the 22nd of March 2009 from 10am to 3pm. Now why we're mentioning this is because there will be Jack Russell races at the Vasey Village Country Carnival. Now there'll be the professional Jack Russell races from Sydney coming in to do the show but they also have a novice competition available as well. So if you want your Foxy or Scotty, West Highland, Whites, Maltese Terriers, Australian Terriers or any small dog that wants to go into the novice race of the Jack Russell Racing, 
please call Carol on 49388119 because uh, entrants need to be in by the 15th of March. So give her a call and register your dog to do some Jack Russell racing. Did, did you say professionals from Sydney? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How big are the jockeys? <laughs> <laughs> and that comment brings Pet Chat to a close today. We'll be back next Friday after the uh, 12 o'clock news and look forward to taking your calls then as well, plus all the other stuff. So thanks, Danny. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jane. I'm Jane Klein on 2NURFM.